I prayed a lot about what to share today, you know, and, 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 and how to do this one-off sermon here, but in, in something that would encourage us, that as we think about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, I, I wanted to serve you in the best way possible today uh, by looking at a passage that is familiar to us, and we read it because, and we reread it because it's one that uh, really speaks to us. It really does encourage us. When I'm feeling down, when I'm feeling in a place where maybe I'm discouraged in my walk with God or, or something's happened in my life or there's a trial I'm going through or something hard I'm walking through, I turn to this passage again and again and again. I'm reminded today of a Sunday many decades ago. It was actually my first Sunday, first Easter Sunday as a brand new Christian. When I first became just aware of God's grace in my life and how he gloriously saved me. I was a 15-year-old, almost 16. It was April of 1986. And I remember the great joy of celebrating that first Resurrection Sunday because God had raised me to life. And this is one of those first passages that I came to that really spoke to me, encouraged me, and I really knew that God loved me. Because of what he did for me in Christ Jesus. So I think this is the best way I can serve you today. And I pray that you would draw assurance and confidence in Jesus through that. If you're our guest today, I don't know where you're at with the Lord this morning. I don't know where your relationship with Jesus Christ is. I don't know if you've trusted Christ as Savior today. But I pray that this message today, you'll hear it's for you as well. You can have these very things if you haven't. So we're in the 8th chapter of Romans there. Let's start in verse 31, and we're going to read through the end of that chapter. Hear the words of the living God. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Hallelujah. This is the word of the Lord. Now, you might be asking yourself, if you're not too familiar with this passage, Paul's asking a question here. Paul is the writer of this letter to these Christians in Rome, to the church in Rome. And he says here, what shall we say to these things? What things? What are the things that he is talking about here that he's referring to? 
Is it everything that he's written in this letter to them? Because Romans, that letter contains a lot of amazing, deep, rich theological truths. Is that in view here? Yeah, I believe it is for sure. But this passage is directly linked to what just came before that. And if you're familiar with the 8th chapter, it is by far one of the most powerful chapters in all of your Bible for all that it reveals to us. So I think that's the things that he's talking about there. These glorious truths there, right? He starts off that chapter saying that we're no longer condemned in Christ because God sent his son. He begins to talk about the indwelling spirit of God in believers who, who helps them put to death sin, Right, So if we struggle with sin, he's saying there, hey, you're not alone in that struggle. God's Spirit is there to help you do that. Not only that, the Spirit of God confirms in you that you are a son and daughter of God. If you've ever called that into question, it's God's Spirit who helps us to know that. And God's Spirit also helps us to pray and to pray according to the will of God. How many of us don't know what to pray for? We don't know if our prayers are even conforming to the will of God. Well, Paul is saying, hey, God has given us his spirit to help us to that end. In that eighth chapter, he talks about the confidence we can have as believers as we look forward to the day when all that is wrong with this world will be made right. Where all of the pain and the suffering and all of the heartache and all that we experience here in this fallen world is going to be made right. The new heavens, the new earth. He says our present suffering is temporary. It's not going to last forever. It's momentary and we can endure it patiently because glory is the destiny of all those who follow Jesus Christ. And then he also says this, which is just a phenomenal promise of God, that God is at work in our lives, in all things, for our good, to make us like Jesus. Isn't that awesome? Unless you're wondering, how can he make such a promise? God can work all things according to those who are called in Christ Jesus, that he can make all those things good, everything good, bad, ugly, painful, and conform us to Christ. Well, it's really important. See, God has not just saved us. He saved us in such a way that his rescue plan, his salvation plan for us cannot fail. Paul says that our decision, right, uh, for Christ was not the first decision. The first decision concerning our salvation was made by God himself. Not us. We were loved and chosen, he's telling us, by God before we even existed there in Romans chapter 8. And that in a point in time, the gospel call came forth to us. And we were then able to respond with repentance and faith and obedience and trust Jesus. We were justified by God. And then Paul just skips a lot of things in the Christian life and goes straight to the end, to the finish line, and says, God's rescue plan is such that it cannot fail, that you will be glorified. You will enter into everything that God has promised you in eternity. Those are the things that he has in view here. And with all that in mind, then Paul sums up, I think, all of that overwhelming feelings he has in regarding to those things, those marvelous truths, And he sums them up into that question, what then shall we say to these things? As amazing as they are, as mind-blowing and praise-inducing and confidence-building as they are, what can we say to these things? 
And he goes, here's, here's what we can say to that. And then he asks four more questions. <laughs> he asks four more questions. It's a, it's a literary style, a writing style that he employs here to, to teach things here. But he asks four more questions, all centered and containing the phrase or the word, rather, who. All right? Four times he asks a particular question centered around that. Those questions are meant to be rhetorical. We know the answer to them. But in reality, there is no answer to those questions. And, and he's just kind of throwing them out there into the universe, if you will. Just kind of defiantly declaring these things in those particular questions and the truths that are associated with those questions there. And he's, 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 he's kind of like daring people to answer that question because there's no good answer to it from the world's perspective, right? If we would grasp the significance of those questions today and the truth attached to those questions, I believe our hearts not only would well up with praise, right? not, not only grow in a deeper affection for what Jesus has done for us, but brothers and sisters, it will give us assurance and confidence in our walk with God. And we need that. I need that every day. I need these truths every single day. There's not a moment of my day that I go through where I I don't need this. The things I'm struggling with, the things I'm walking through, whether it's a besetting sin, a trial, a a difficult person. How many have difficult people in their life? Now, don't don't worry about that. that, They might be sitting next to you, okay? We all go through things in life. We need these gospel truths. We need these gospel truths. I saw some elbows nudging the person next to them. I'll, I'll let the Lord deal with you. And, of course, that person will deal with you later, right? So what I want to look at is those four who questions today and phrase them around this thing. These four indisputable assurances secured for us in Christ Jesus. And let's look at the first one there, right? Because this is how he begins. If God is for us, who can be against us? I love, I love that statement. It's a question, but it's a great statement. Who can be against us? But think about that first phrase. If God is for us. That statement's a little dangerous because it's subject to abuse. A lot of people have abused this statement. A lot of people have made the claim that God is for them. Like cult leaders claim You know, God is for them before they make you drink some Kool-Aid. False religions claim that God is for them. Self-righteous people claim that God is for them, right? So it can be be abused, but we'll come back to that in just a moment. It's also strange for him then, as part of that question, to, to, to ask this. Who can be against us? Like you're saying, no one can be against us. If God is for us, nobody can be against us. Well, we know that's not true. There's a lot of people against us. There's a lot of things against us. We have a devil that's against us. Our own flesh is against us, right? There's people in the world who don't like Christians. They are against us, right? So what does Paul mean? If God is for us, who can be against us? Well, let me just give you the answer to that here, right? He's declaring... That there are no adversaries, no enemies, no one in heaven or on earth who can come against us who are of any account when God is for us. When God is fighting for us, 
There's no fair fight. It's not a fair fight at all. Remember that scene, those of you who are a little bit older and remember Raiders of the Lost Ark? That scene, right, when, when Marion is kidnapped, right, she's taken, and, and Indy is trying to save her, right, and he's running through the market trying to catch up with the, the truck that they put her in a basket, and they're taking her away, and he's going through the market, and then he's stopped by this guy who starts just kind of doing some fancy stuff with, with some Arabian swords, right? What does he do? He just kind of stops there, gives a little look, and pulls out his revolver, and phew, one shot and drops the guy, right? The enemy brings a knife to a gunfight, right? And that's God. The enemy brings a knife and God always wins. And this is the context here of what he's saying there. If God is for us, of what account is any enemy that comes against his people? Doesn't matter. We have a lot of adversaries. The world, the flesh, the devil, right? All of these things are our adversaries. They come against us. But how often do we forget how great our God really is? And when those things come against us, we let fear grip our heart. We cower sometimes. We shrink back and we forget that God always wins. And if God is for us, who who can be against us? These things seek to rob our confidence in God. Steal our assurance. Cause us to doubt the goodness of God in our life. We forget that God is great. David didn't forget this, though. There's this psalm, the 56th psalm, where um, it's it's a psalm that he wrote during the time when he was running away from King Saul, and he ended up getting seized by the Philistines. And and there was trouble. Everywhere he went, there was trouble. And this is is God's anointed king. And and he's he's a a refugee. He's running. He's hiding. He's a fugitive from from the kingdom. And, And everyone is trying to go after him. But look what he says. In the 56th Psalm, it says, My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you. In God, whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? This I know, that God is for me. David knew that. Why don't we? If you're in Christ, beloved, God is for you. Do you know that? If we really believe that, that would change so much in our walk with God. Now, I don't want you to get a big head here, all right? So let me take a few moments to kind of deflate our egos a little bit, right? God is for us, but he's not for you because you're awesome. He's not for you because you are the most amazing thing that there is. He's not for you because he's lonely and he needs you. He's not for you because he's got a hole in his heart that is shaped like you and you complete him. He's not for you like that. We don't bring anything to the table here. Our performance, our obedience, none of those things. He's not for you because you're just really holy and excel in all spiritual matters so much so that you just kind of float, right? Your feet don't even touch the ground. You're so holy and saintly. He's not for you for any of those reasons. Listen, Scripture tells us that God has chosen the weak things of the world, the foolish things of the world to confound the wisdom of the wise. That He's chosen all that is lowly 
and despised. Guess who that is referring to, right? That's us. That should humble us a little bit. God didn't choose any superstars for his team. He's the only superstar on the team. You know the old thing. I'm not going to ask you if this was you, right? But in the schoolyard, right, when they're picking teams, who gets picked first? The athletic ones, right? Who gets picked last? You do. (laughs) I did. I wasn't very athletic, right? Well, God picked us last, right, in that sense. Right? There's no superstars here. That should, that should bring some humility to this. So how is God for us? Well, I'll tell you how God is for you. God is for you in light of things that Paul has already written to these believers in his letter. He's for you because he set his love upon you from before the foundation of the world. And that not conditioned on anything you were going to do for him. He's for you because in Christ, he made you righteous and he forgave your sins. He's for you because he placed his spirit in you to make you holy like his son. He's for you because once that plan of salvation was set in motion, there is not a thing in the entirety of this universe that will thwart the plan of God concerning your salvation. Not one thing. You can't even get in the way of that. He's for you because of his electing love and Christ's work on your behalf. That's how he's for you. So at the end of it all, what are we going to boast in? We're going to boast in the Lord, right? We're going to brag on him and how awesome he is because we brought nothing to the table. So Paul underscores this amazing truth that brings us assurance by asking another question connected to that. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? What's he saying there? He's making an argument here from the greater to the lesser. Listen, if God, through Christ, was able to solve the greatest problem of humanity... That is our fractured relationship to God because of our rebellion and sin. And he was able to, in the the giving of his son, solve our sin problem. Which arguably would be the hardest and greatest thing to accomplish. Do you think any of the other problems you have in life are too difficult for him? Do you think it will be too hard for him to give us everything that he promised us in Christ? A God who sacrificed his own son on our behalf, brothers and sisters, who gave him up. He will not withhold anything that you and I need in order for his plan of salvation to completely unfold in our lives. A plan, brothers and sisters, that includes taking us all the way to the future glory that he has promised us. God's ultimate proof. That he is for us, that he is for his elect children, is found in the cross. I ask you, what is of more worth than the Son of God? What has greater value than the unique one and only Son of God? He's of infinite value and worth. There's no greater gift that heaven could give us, that God could give his children. So God has already given us the ultimate and greatest and most costliest gift in his own son. 
How can he fail, brothers and sisters, to give us everything else, which is lesser that you and I will need to succeed when it comes to our salvation? There's nothing. There's nothing. You know, we live here in central Florida, right? The enter- one of the entertainment capitals of the world. One of the destination place where families will save up thousands and thousands of dollars, right? To fly into Orlando, rent a car, rent expensive hotels, purchase really expensive Disney tickets. I know some of you are boycotting Disney now. It's okay. Stick with me for a moment, right? But you know, this is what happens. Thousands of dollars, I mean, think about a family of five traveling here from another country or from another state, having to stay in the hotels, pay those expensive tickets, right? All of those things. You imagine a mom and a dad who has saved thousands of dollars to bring their family here, and they're on the way to the park, and they get to the parking garage there, and they see a sign that says $30. I don't know how much. Parking is, but it's always ridiculous, right? Imagine if the dad, as he's pulling up in his little rented minivan, gets up there and he goes, $30? Mm -mm. This is where I draw the line. We're going back. Who does that, right? No parent would do that. They've already spent the greater. How will they not spend on the lesser? This is what God has done for us. He's already paid the enormous price in his son whose blood was shed for us. How will he not give us the lesser also? All things concerning our salvation and what he's promised us. He already gave the greater. He'll pay the parking garage. And if you go to Universal, he'll buy you that butter beer, which tastes terrible. But I don't know why people buy it. He'll do that. We do that as parents, as imperfect, flawed, and sinful as we are with our kids. You don't think God, who gave the greater, isn't going to do that for us too? In giving us his son, he gave us everything. And, And the cross is the guarantee of God's continuing and ongoing, unfailing generosity towards us in Christ Jesus. Don't forget that. It's logical to conceive that God would give the most treasured person in the universe his son to secure our salvation and then not give us everything else that is necessary to see our salvation through to its completion. There's no way. There's no way. He gave the greater. He gave the greater. He does not redeem us to reject us. He redeems us to restore us and to renew us and conform us to the image of his son. God is for you, brothers and sisters. He's for you. Don't leave this place knowing that in Christ, God is for you. And if that's the case, who can be against you? Let's look at the second question here. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Again, that doesn't mean that no charges are ever going to be brought against you. Some of you have had law enforcement charges brought against you. Some have had other people wave and wag accusations at us and bring charges against us. We know for sure we have an enemy who brings accusations against us. I mean, he's called the accuser of the brethren. This is what he does. He brings charges against us. And you can also count on it that when you fail, there's going to be someone around you 
right, to point out your failure. (laughs) We have those people in our life. We screw up, we sin, we fail God, and they want to remind us of that. Some of you have heard the voice of the accuser whispering in your ear when you sin, when you fail, when, when you rebel against God, when you're not walking with God as you could. What, what does he say? You're a hypocrite. You're, not, you're no disciple of Jesus. Look at you. You can't, even, you can't even stop sinning for a day. You're not a Christian. Right? It's accusations, the voice of the accuser at us. We've all experienced this. Our own conscience, the word of God also presents charges. Our own consciences condemn us at times as well. You, if you're in Christ, have a desire to live for God. Or you should. You should have a desire for holiness, right? A desire for purity. All of these things, right? We, we want to obey God. But every day presents evidence of our failure. Every day presents the, the reality of broken promises we've made to God, uh, of how we don't open the Bible to read it, or, or, or how we don't pray, how we pursue lesser pleasures and give in to sin. Our, our hypocrisy stares at us in the mirror every day when we get up, and the enemy wags his accusatory finger at us to discourage us. In our walk with God, we all experience this in our life. We doubt the assurance we should have of our salvation. We doubt Christ. How does Paul answer this, right? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? A simple little phrase here. It is God who justifies. It is God who justifies. Now, Paul has spent an enormous amount in this letter talking about justification. We don't have time to look at that in detail today. But the charges that are presented, the accusations that come against us in Christ, when we're in Christ, are going to fail because the penalty that they demanded has already been paid in full by Jesus Christ. And he says, who can bring a charge against God's elect? Who are God's elect? Those he has chosen in him from before the foundation of the world. Those God whom, whom God foreknew and predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. He has justified us. He's justified us. He's declared us not guilty. They're forgiven. We are righteous all because of Christ. And those who attempt to accuse us are suggesting that our status with God is in jeopardy when we sin. When we screw up, isn't that what the enemy does to us? And by feeding us lies. Well, you just keep on sinning. You can't really be forgiven. Or you've sinned too much. There's no way God's going to keep forgiving you because you keep doing the same boneheaded thing. No. Our status with God is not in jeopardy. There's no, there's no quota. We need to meet a certain level of holiness so that we maintain our status as being justified by God and having been declared righteous by Him because of Christ. Right? These charges come feeding us things like we're going to be stripped of our spiritual standing. Like our, our righteousness badge is going to be ripped off of our chest because we continue to screw up. Mm-mm. It's God who justifies I don't know if you know this, but you did not justify yourself. If you justified yourself, then yeah, I I can see how we will slip from our standing. How we will fall away from it. But he says, it is God who has justified us. 
our standing with God, our acceptance, our salvation is based solely on the free grace of God offered to us in Christ. It doesn't come any other way. And that justification then becomes the basis of our sanctification, our growth in godliness. Because I'm accepted by God, because I'm loved by God, because God has justified me, I can obey God. I can live for God. I want that, right? I want to be holy. It's not that I work and I obey God and I pursue holiness so that God can then accept me and love me and forgive me and justify me. Don't ever get that backwards, brothers and sisters. Don't confuse it. It'll screw up your spiritual walk. And it's not the gospel. And it's not the grace of God. God in Christ pronounces us righteous. He gives us Christ's righteousness. And in that process, you don't add anything to it. Therefore, who can challenge God's verdict? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? God rescued us when? When we were dead in our trespass and sins. Here's the good news about that. And please see it as good news. God knew exactly what he was getting into when he saved us. When he justified us. He knew what he was getting into. You ever brought, you know, maybe stayed up late one night. Maybe insomnia. And you're on the TV and there's always infomercials, right? Somehow at 2 or 3 in the morning, there's infomercials. Now, I know now you can be on your tablet and be looking at YouTube and other things. But back in the day, let's just say, right? <laughs> right? There'd be TV infomercials, right? All the time. And they'd go on forever. They're like 30-minute long commercials. But you're sitting there. You're tired and you get worn down and you impulse buy. And maybe you pick up that set of the, the Ginsu steak knives because you see they can cut through steel. They can cut through a car. And then you can take it and slice a tomato, right? <laughs> like butter. Or... or Maybe you want to cover that bald spot, right? So you get that hair thickening spray, and then it looks like you have this beautiful, lush head of hair. Mainly the guys. Right? You buy those things. Then what happens? You get it at home, and it's garbage. That knife is worthless, man. You can't even cut through melted butter with that thing. And then you spray that thing on your head, and, and you look like a circus freak, right? Because it doesn't match your hair color, and it does look like spray paint. Now, I have not bought those things. Don't be, don't, don't be wondering. My bald spot's still there. I don't use those particular products, right? What happens? We get those things. We thought they were something, and then we have buyer's remorse, right? And we wish we could return this thing, but now we're stuck, right? Because there's a no refund policy. God, brothers and sisters, does not have buyer's remorse with us. He knows the absolute worst about you and I. So what can anyone else tell God about us that he doesn't already know? Not a thing. When you face those accusations and you become discouraged in your walk, thinking that something you've done has made you unacceptable to God, ask yourself, who is it that justified me? What is it that made me acceptable to God? You're still dead in your trespasses and sin. That's when you were made acceptable to God. Not because of you. Paul mentions a few times in this letter that it is God who justifies the ungodly. He says also that Christ died for the ungodly. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
all of this while we were still his enemies. It says that he reconciled us to himself. God justified you, brothers and sisters, with his eyes wide opened. There's nothing hidden from him. There's nothing about you that he doesn't know. Yet, he still set his love upon you and saved you in Christ. On that basis, brothers and sisters, Satan's accusations of our failure should always fall on deaf ears. We can even agree with him. Yeah, you're right. If I justified myself, yep, I could lose it. 100% gone. But I didn't justify myself. God justified me. Third question he asks, who is to condemn? Who's to condemn? Now he's talking about bringing charges, right? We kind of get this courtroom feeling here, right? Someone bringing charges, presenting evidences, and now condemnation, right? A sentence, a verdict being rendered here. Who is to condemn? Well, again, there are many who want to condemn us. Lots of people. Lots of people want to pronounce a sentence of guilt upon us. And desire to punish us. But there's no greater promise that can be found here than we see right at the beginning of this chapter. The very first verse of this chapter. Romans 8.1. You know this. There is therefore now what? No condemnation for everyone. For those who are in Christ Jesus. For those who are in Christ. That's not a universal promise. It's for those who are in Christ Who can condemn us? Well, there is one who could condemn us. Christ could condemn us. But he doesn't, right? He doesn't. All of those condemnations fail because of what Christ has done. And look how Paul points to this so clearly. Look what he says there in that second part of verse 34. Who can condemn us? Who's to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who is to condemn you, brothers and sisters? Christ has rescued us from condemnation through his death, resurrection, exaltation, and intercession. Now, I just want to look at those briefly there, because they're important. Who's to condemn? Well, let's remind ourselves, it's Christ who died. We deserve condemnation. I deserve condemnation because of my sin. But what did God do? God condemned our sin by laying it upon Christ. Who was condemned in our place. This is what the cross signifies for us. God's wrath do us being poured out upon Christ. So what? So that we wouldn't experience the righteous wrath of God. There's no way. The cross is proof of God's love for us and that God is for us. When we come to this meal today at the end of our service here before we dismiss, this is a reminder that God is for us, that we are no longer condemned, that the charges have been dropped. The cross is proof that God is holy That our sin is treason against our creator and that our sin must be punished. It's proof of God's love, but it's proof that God is holy. Christ died so that you and I would not be condemned. Christ was raised, he said. He's rose from the grave, triumphing over sin and death. Who is it that raised Christ? It was the Father who raised Christ by the power of the Spirit. Why? 
He raised him from the dead, Paul says in Romans 4.25, for our justification. The fact that Christ was raised means that that sacrifice for our sins was accepted by God. How do we know that what Christ did for us was pleasing to God? Made atonement for our sins? By God raising him from the dead, that is the proof that God said that is enough. That is sufficient to pay for their sins. God is satisfied with the death of his son in place of our death. Here's what that means. God's not going to reconvene another hearing to hear more evidence, more charges, and alter the verdict he's already made concerning you and I. Nothing can jeopardize our eternal salvation. And Christ's resurrection is the proof and basis for that justification. He goes on to say here, Christ is exalted. He's exalted, right? He rose from the dead, and what did he do? He ascended to heaven. He's seated, the scripture tells us, at the right hand of God. This is his exalted position. He completed his work to secure our salvation. He ascends to heaven and now sits with all authority and power as the sovereign, as the supreme king. So I ask you, who can condemn us when the highest authority in the universe has already rendered his verdict? No one. No one. Christ intercedes for us. He makes intercession for us. He's our high priest. That's what it means there. When you think about the Old Testament, the work of the priests in the tabernacle and the temple and all that they had to do there. If you know a little about the temple and the tabernacle, it was furnished with different objects, right? Of course, you had the altar, you had the the candlesticks, right, and the, the altar of incense. A number of furnishings were in there. Of course, the ark in the, in the Holy of Holies. Guess what you don't see in the temple? With all those furnishings. There are no chairs. There's no place for the priest to sit down. Why? I'm sure they're tired. There's no place for them to sit down because their work is never done. It is unending work to make atonement for the sins of the people and act as mediator between the people and God continually offering up sacrifices for their sins that could only provide an outward purification but could not take care of the sin of the heart. That's why there are no chairs there. But when Christ finished his work, when Christ made atonement for our sins once and for all, he rose from the dead, ascended to heaven, and he sits down at the right hand of God. His work is done. His work is completed. So when he declared on the cross, it is finished, bowed his head, and yielded up his spirit, right? It's because he fulfilled all of his priestly work. It's done. It's done. That's why the writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 7 that Christ continues to secure the benefits of his death for his people by what? By making intercession for them. That means Christ continues to secure the benefits of the cross and his death for his people. So who is to condemn us? Paul says, there's no one. Christ died, Christ rose, Christ is exalted, and Christ continues to intercede for his people. When the accusations are hurled to bring us condemnation, we can imagine seeing Jesus right with the Father, you know, saying, that one that Satan is accusing is mine. You gave him to me before the foundation of the world. 
He belongs to me. I died for him. My blood was shed for him. I bore the wrath that was due him as a penalty for his sins. I fulfilled everything that was required for him to be accepted by you. Just imagine him interceding for us. Now, Father, help him or her with their struggles. Send your spirit to strengthen and encourage. Give them victory over sins. Remind them of everything that I have done for them. Remind them that I love them. And I gave them assurance through my death and resurrection. God has already brought every charge against you that could possibly be brought and declared them forgiven and paid in full in Christ Jesus. Don't entertain those charges. Don't don't give in to that discouragement or continued failings because we, we do. And we're going to. We're never going to be sinless. We should be sinning less. We're never going to be sinless on this side of eternity. This is just not going to happen. We pursue holiness. We strive for holiness, as the scripture says. There should be a, if, you, if God's spirit is in you, there should be a desire for holiness. Like that's one of the signs. But that desire for holiness and your pursuit of holiness isn't what make God's love you, God love you or accept you. Or forgive you. Christ has done this for us. And lastly, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Paul does something with this question he doesn't do with the others. He actually gives us like a little list, right? A sample list. Hey, here's some possible things you might think could separate you from the love you know, of Christ, right? Because these are things that come into the believer's life in one way or another talks about tribulation and persecution and the sword you know all having to do with this this reality that the world is hostile to believers like our faith is continually being assaulted the world hates god and the world's going to hate his people and it's going to manifest itself through through the way we are persecuted we are marginalized we're oppressed right even up to the point he says the sword what does that mean Some will die for their faith. We've been talking about that through a series in Revelation. Persecution is real. And our faithfulness and allegiance to to Christ is going to continually be tested by the world and our enemy. And some will pay the ultimate price, right, in martyrdom for their faithfulness to Jesus Christ. So when those things come, when the heat gets turned up in the Christian life this way, what do we, we're tempted, right, to think that God doesn't love us. We're tempted to think that God may have abandoned us. I think of our brothers and sisters around the world facing horrific persecution, isolated, alone, right? They don't, they're not gathering like this today on Easter Sunday. They can't gather freely like this. And I can't imagine sometimes I'm thinking, God has, where's God? Does he even love us? Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Paul quotes from Psalm 44, where Israel's being persecuted by the nations, right? He, he gives us a quote in that psalm, and then he begins to talk about some other things. Distress, famine, nakedness, right? Stressful situations where, where, where we you know, are concerned about even our basic necessities, right? Food and clothing, right? And, and, and when we don't have those things, we can tempt, be tempted to believe that God is, doesn't care for us. My basic needs are, God, you said in your word that you'd meet my needs, yet 
I'm going a little hungry. You're not naked. You have clothing. But it's the basics, right? You don't, you don't have enough. There's scarcity in your life. And he's saying all of these things might tempt a believer to, be th- to think that God has abandoned them. Now, we've experienced things in our life. And everyone here would probably have a story where you went through something and thought, hey, does God even love me? Does God care about me? Is he with me? Is he even near at the moment? Right? All of these things. Paul experienced these things in his life in one way or another. Now, as of this point, he hadn't experienced the sword. But we know the end of his life, he is going to face it. He will be executed as a faithful witness to Christ. There is real suffering, real heartache, real loss, dark nights of the soul, painful things in this life, situations which we feel are unbearable in life. Things that challenge our faith to the degree where we feel abandoned by God. We all go through that. Here's the amazing thing. See, Paul doesn't ask with this question, what can separate us from our love for Christ? If the question were phrased like this, what can separate me from my love for Jesus? (laughs) Just about anything, right? That if it were up to me, I, I would find zero comfort in this passage My love for God is like a roller coaster. (laughs) There's ebbs and flows to it. It's hot one day, not so hot the next. It fluctuates based on my feelings. Some days I would grade my love for God as a suck plus, maybe a suck minus. I don't know which one would be worse. We all experience that. We all walk through that. Our love for God isn't fiery hot every day. Would that it were, but it's not. It depends on what happens, doesn't it? It depends on what you're going through. It depends what obstacle is in your way, what trial you're facing. It's easy to love God and think God is for you and God's with you when everything is amazing in life. Bills are paid, relationships are good, jobs going great, got a promotion, investments are doing good. Not so much, right, when it's not that way. But Paul is not asking about our love for Jesus. He's talking about his love for us. The love of Christ. What can separate us from God's love for us? That is the question. And by now, the answer should be obvious. See, if it were dependent on us to maintain the love of God for us, if it were dependent on our feeble efforts, then the answer is always going to be anything and everything could separate us from the love, from his love. But that's not what it's dependent on. This is why it's glorious that salvation is the work of God from start to finish, beginning to end. It's his work. And because it's his work, it cannot fail. See, God's love is connected to his will, his divine will in saving us. He exerted his divine will from before the foundation of the world. That's what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8 regarding God's foreknowledge, which really means his forelove. God set his love upon a people 
before they even existed, before they even were, right? His divine will was exerted in saving us. And it's in God's elect and love for us that he employs his divine power then to make us like Jesus. And nothing can stop that. So when we doubt God's love, because we failed him, because we keep on sinning, because of pain and suffering and life circumstances, and when the world seems to have set itself against us, we must be reminded that his love for us isn't based or conditioned on our performance. It's not, brothers and sisters. I want you to have a bigger grasp of the grace of God here today. John Stott wrote in his commentary on Romans, Our confidence is not in our love for him, which is frail, fickle, and faltering but in his love for us, which is steadfast, faithful, and persevering. I love that. You know why God loves you? Because he loves you. (laughs) That's it. God loves you because he loves you. Not because of what you do for him, or what you've done for him, or what you will do for him. So Paul says here in verse 37, right? You know, saying, like through all the hard things in life, the pain, suffering, persecution, all the things that would try to dislodge us from the love of God, the love of Christ for us. He says, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us, loved us. You know why we're going to win? Because of him. Because of Christ. Christ demonstrated his love for us through his suffering. So what in heaven or on earth can possibly separate us from it? Nothing. Nothing. Paul faced all these things and he still could rest assured in the love of Christ. We know this, right? We, we know this in our head, but we don't always know it in the thick of things. God does not promise that you and I are going to be exempt from temptations or trials or tragedies or suffering in this life. We're not exempt from it, but that we would triumph over those things and through them. God has not said that our life would be worry-free, brothers and sisters. God has not said that our life is going to be a cakewalk. That just because we have Christ, things are, is going to be a life of comfort and ease and overwhelming prosperity. Name it and claim it. Have everything you want. God hasn't promised that. But what he has committed is that nothing will separate us from his love for us. Not a thing. Not a thing. And, and then he gives an added oomph to this argument here. Because he lists a few more things that we might be tempted to think are powerful enough to dislodge us from God's love. And he talks about things in the natural order, and then he talks about supernatural beings, maybe angels or rulers in the heavenly place. Maybe, no. Not even the most powerful created beings, good or bad, can separate us from the love of God. And then he just closes with this, nor anything else in all creation. Right? Nothing in the entire universe can do that, can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. You know what that means? Not even you can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Now, isn't that good news? Uh, no, no. Isn't that good news? Because <laughs> if we could, we would, right? If we could do that, we would make that happen. God is for us. 
God has silenced all of our accusers. God does not condemn us. And God's love for us is inseparable. What great assurances we have because of what Christ Jesus has done for us. See, these questions Paul asks here, they affect all of humanity. It causes us to really evaluate what kind of God do we really believe in? What do we really believe to be true about God? What do we really believe to be true about what Jesus accomplished for us? Do you believe in a God whose purposes can be frustrated? Or do you believe in a God that is totally for you? And as a result, there's no enemy in heaven or in hell, on earth, or anywhere in the universe that can frustrate his plan. Do you consistently believe the accusations of the enemy when he rails against you in your failures and your sin? Or are you resting completely on the fact that God is the one who justified you? Do you wallow in guilt or shame? Feeling condemned? Or are you trusting completely in Christ's death, resurrection, exaltation, and intercession on your behalf? Do you believe that life circumstances can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Or are you trusting that God loves you because he loves you? And that's it. And nothing can separate you from that. I want you to be encouraged by those things. I want you to be comforted in your walk because of God's grace, His overwhelming grace. I want you to be strengthened today that Christ's death, resurrection, exaltation, and intercession secures all of these things for you, brothers and sisters. They're yours. They're yours in Christ. But they're not yours apart from Christ. It's in Christ alone that we have those very things. If you're here today and you've not trusted in Christ, you really can't have assurance of these things. You, you can't have assurance that God is for you, even though you might be a good religious person. You, you can't have assurance that he's for you or that no charges can be brought against you because maybe you're saying, I'm, I'm a good person. I do good things. I, I, I mean, I, better than that guy who sins a lot over there. I, I give, I, I attend church services, I even read my Bible, I even pray. I say the Our Father ten times a day. You can't have assurance that you're not condemned if you think that it's the good that you do that can actually merit salvation for you. No, no, these assurances are only for those who've trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. Who've let go at any attempts of self-salvation because of their self-righteousness and fling themselves completely upon the mercies of Jesus Christ. That's who these assurances are for. Some of you might be in this room saying today, I, I don't know if I can believe these things because you don't know what I've done. You, you don't know how much I've sinned. You don't know how much I have failed God. He can't forgive me. He can't love me. I want you to know today that the cross of Christ is the proof that he can forgive you of whatever you've done. He didn't just take lesser sins upon himself. He took the worst of the worst upon himself. 
the wrath of God upon him for a lie to a murder was laid upon Christ. The wrath that is due us for the, for, for the payment and the punishment of our sins was laid upon Jesus at the cross. Yes, your sins can be forgiven if you turn to Christ. If you trust in Jesus Christ. The mercy of God can flow to you. And these assurances can be yours. The cross is the greatest reminder that there is a God who loves so much. That he gave his one and only son. So that everyone who believes in him will not perish. But will have everlasting life. I want to implore you today. Come to Christ. Trust in Christ alone for your salvation. Your good works aren't going to save you. They're going to damn you. There's only one good work that was done. And that was done by our Savior. And one look to Jesus is all that it takes. Accept the grace of God in your life and receive him today as Lord, as Savior, as the one who made the payment for your sins. Call on him today. Christ's death and resurrection has secured our eternal salvation and redemption.